Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Well, as sometimes happens, I am actually recording this lesson today as a re-record. This lesson was given yesterday. And uh, I pushed the button one too many times, I ended up turning on the recorder, and the second time I pushed it, I ended up turning off the recorder. So yesterday's lesson had a total recording time of two seconds. And so today is kind of a re-record, and I apologize for that. The dynamic is a little bit different, because uh, yesterday the the room was full of people, today it's not. So you're not going to hear as many people turning pages, you're not going to hear as many people interacting, because there's nobody else here. Uh, but uh, I felt it was it was important enough to be able to provide a recording for that study and uh, not have that gap. So today's study is going to be Genesis chapter 22. We're going to pick up where we left off. So Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to be at. And we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 24, or actually finishing the chapter of chapter 22. And then we're going to be looking at the first two verses of chapter 23. Now, yesterday when I did this lesson, we did a lot of writing on the board because, as you will see, if you're looking at verses 20 through 24, the last several verses there of chapter 22, you can see there's a bunch of names there. And before we get into those names, though, I want to recap a little bit with where we were in the previous lesson. The previous lesson, Genesis chapter 22, the bulk of the material, was about Abraham's final exam. The final exam being that the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, go do this impossible thing, go sacrifice your son, the son of promise. And that probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to Abraham, but he had learned to hear God's voice. He had learned to be able to discern God's voice. He knew that that was God speaking to him. And he went all the way to the point where he raised the knife and was ready to sacrifice his son in obedience to the Lord's commands. And the angel of the Lord stops him and says, okay, stop. And uh, it ends there with a reiteration of a blessing in similar wording that we've seen before as we've been looking over these last uh, many chapters. Starting in verse 16, the angel of the Lord says to him, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So that was the highlight there of that entire chapter, chapter 22, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, as it is uh, sometimes referred to. So moving on there, Basically, it ends with verse 19 saying, Abraham returned to his young men. They rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And then verse 20, which is where we're going to begin today. Verse 20 says, Now it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Ramah, 
also bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. And so you're probably thinking, oh great, another batch of names here. I'm not interested in a bunch of names. I don't know who these people are. Can we just move on to more interesting material? But uh, God's word often rewards the diligent for those who are willing to give the time to seek and find what there might be, little gems of information that there might be in there. So we're going to pause here for a little while, and we're going to talk about some of these names. There might be a few that kind of jump out at you a little bit. And the reason that they might sound somewhat familiar or vaguely familiar is because the call of Abraham happened in Genesis chapter 12, but the end of Genesis chapter 11 gave us some of these exact same names that we find in this list here. So what I'd recommend and what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 11 and we're going to read the last several verses of Genesis chapter 11 to kind of give us a background of what we just read there. And we'll come back to that and look at it again and it'll make more sense. So going to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 27 through 32 in particular. Now this is before the Lord called Abraham. That happens in chapter 12. At that time he was known as Abram. So in chapter 12, the Lord calls to Abram, but before that, we're given the name, so we have a little bit of a family, a short family tree for who this guy Abraham is. All right, so Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. So what we did yesterday is we used the whiteboard, we started to make a family tree. And at the top, we had Terah, and in parentheses next to Terah, it says Abraham's dad, or Abraham's father, okay? And then we drew lines down from there, showing the three sons that are named here in verse 27. Abram, we have on the left side. The middle, we have Nahor. And on the right side, we have Haran. So we've already created a, a mini tree, if you will, a mini family tree. Terah at the top, Abram at the left side, Nahor down the middle, and Haran on the right side. And then under Haran, as it says there at the end of verse 27, Haran begot Lot. So we drew a line down from Haran and wrote in Lot. Moving now to verse 28. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So like we said, this is before God called Abraham to move from his land to move into a land that God would show him. So this is before Abram moved to Canaan. He's still back in the land in Mesopotamia and Ur of the Chaldees. And so before they moved, Haran dies. So on the family tree, we have Terah at the top, Abraham or Abram on the left, Nahor in the middle, Haran on the right, and we crossed off Haran because he's passed away now. Haran died before his father Terah and his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Verse 29, then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. So we wrote in Sarah next to Abraham, just to the right of Abram. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. So we wrote Milcah to the right of Nahor, but there's some other lines that need to be written for Milcah, as we're going to see here. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Who's Haran? It's the guy that just died. So we draw a line connecting Milcah. She's the daughter of Haran, the brother of Lot, and as it turns out, she's also the sister of Iscah. As you can see from that verse, verse 29, the second half, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So Haran is the father of Milcah. Haran is the father of Iscah, 
just as he's the father of Lot. So Milcah, Lot, Iscah, all connected to Haran, but Milcah has a line also connecting her to Nahor. She is Nahor's wife. Now, yesterday when I was reading this, somebody in the group, you can see the furrow brow on his face, and he was uh, a little bit appalled about the close relationships between these. Here's Nahor marrying his niece. Yeah, actually, back then, it wasn't a big deal. Genetically, things were purer back then. Nowadays, uh, you can't get away with that. So back then in Abraham's time, it wasn't condemned. Uh, but by the time of Moses, and as you uh, probably may be familiar with as you read through the law, those close relationships were prohibited. Moving now to verse 30, chapter 11, verse 30. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, right? So these, I've got circled on the board then, I circled Terah, Abram, Sarai, and Lot. These are the ones that are leaving that area in Mesopotamia to head toward Canaan. Verse 31, though, that, didn't, that wasn't the end of the sentence there. It says, went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. They came to a land where they ended up stopping, all right? And by the way, you notice there that the land that they end up stopping has the same name as the person who passed away, Haran. It may be that that region was given the name over time as it came to be known based on the, this actual person here, this actual character listed in this genealogy. Verse 32 so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So Terah dies before they get to Canaan at the age of 205. That's quite a bit longer than we live nowadays. But if you're looking at the genealogical record in Genesis, you see that the ages at which people died was getting younger and younger. So now we have some names on the board. We have some names to give us a starting place. We can go back now to Genesis chapter 22. And read that same list that we already read. And I think you're going to find that it makes more sense now. So in going back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 20, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah. Now find Milcah on the list. You'll find Milcah is the daughter of Haran. She's also the wife of Nahor. So now we have some bearings. We've got our bearings as to who Milcah is. It was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. And we look at the list and we can see Nahor is right there connected to Abraham through Terah. So now we're starting to be able to put together some of the pieces that, of the information that we're going to be able to glean here from verses 20 through 24. Now I will say this, just provide a little bit of a background. What happened? Well, at Genesis chapter 12, you remember that's when Abraham went to Canaan, but this family of Nahor and Milcah stayed over in Mesopotamia. So it's been a long time since he's probably heard any news from them. He left Ur of the Chaldees, came to Canaan when he was 75 years old. He's now quite a bit older than that. In fact, we're going to find in just a few verses, chapter 23, verse 1, by the time we get there, he's 137 years old. He ended up having Isaac at the age of 100. So he's somewhere between 100 and 137, probably closer to that larger end or the, the older age there of 137. He's somewhere in there. So he's receiving news that potentially he could have been gone for 62 years. We don't know exactly when it was, but it could have been as much as 62 years since he's heard anything. In those years, 
he's found out that his brother, through Milka, has had several sons. And we're going to read about those sons' names here. In verse 21, his firstborn, Huz. All right? Huz. This is an actual name of a person. This is also ends up later on becoming known as a region or an area. So this person figures prominently enough that the region seems to be, have been named after him. Regarding Hus, Victor P. Hamilton says some of these names are identifiable, starting this list with Hus anyway. Some of these names are identifiable, for example, according to some biblical texts, uh, that is Jeremiah 25.20 and Lamentations 4.21 and Genesis 10.23, a place named Uz is located in Arabia, but other biblical texts suggest another area located in Aram. Aram is an ancient name for modern Syria. Okay? We also find of interest is Job chapter 1 verse 1 where it says that Job himself was a descendant from somebody of the land of Uz. So this is not the only place in the Bible where Uz appears. Originally, it looks like the name of a person, which gives rise to a name of a region or an area. The next one is Buz. His brother is Buz, all right? So you've got Buz and Buz from one of the commentaries. All that is known of Buz as a place name probably is an Arabian site due to its mention with Didan, also known as Sidan, and Tima in Arabia in Jeremiah 25, 23. And also Elihu. Elihu is the fourth friend or the fourth counselor or advisor in the book of Job. The first three spend most of the book trying to tell Job he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. And finally, at near the end of the book, Elihu ends up speaking up. And uh, it looks like he's a descendant of Buz, all right? And that's in Job 32.2 and also in Job 32.6. The next one is Kemuel. Kemuel, we don't know much about Kemuel, but we do find a reference or at least that same name being applied to an individual in Numbers, chapter 34 to verse 24, and also in 1 Chronicles 27, 17. And then it says something interesting about Kemuel. It says regarding Kemuel, he is actually the father of Aram. Aram is a name that also means highland, highland, all right? So Aram there is specifically mentioned as a son of Kemuel. One of the commentators says regarding Aram, it says, Aram here is not the same as the descendant of Shem, which we see in chapter 10, verse 22. His very name, however, does show Aramean connections, which would be appropriate for the Nahor clan. These are Aramean. They're going to become or what we would refer to as the Aramean tribes. All right. The next one, Genesis chapter 22, verse 22. Chesed. All right. Chesed or Chesed. Regarding uh, this one, it seems to have a phonetic association with the Chaldeans, all right? Uh, that's something that you, for further study, if you want to look at it, chapter 11, verse 28. And uh, one of the commentators says, perhaps this figure is the ancestor of the Chaldeans, a tribe of southern Mesopotamia, whose roots, therefore, would be Aramean. The next one is Hazo. Hazo, not much is known about Hazo or Pildash or Ditlaf for that matter. Those are the next three that we're looking at. But regarding Hazo, something interesting about Hazo and Buz, and here's what that is. Outside of the Bible, there's an attestation to the historicity of Hazo and Buzo, and here's how it works. Esarhaddon, all right? Esarhaddon is a figure from history you probably are not familiar with. He's the younger son of Sennacherib. Esarhaddon, back in the year 677 BC, he goes on a campaign where he's conquering lands. And then in 677 BC, there's this record among the people that he's conquered are uh, Bazu and Hazu, which could be related to Buz and Hazo here that we have in this very list. You can actually, if you go onto Google and you type in Esarhaddon, you can actually see a victory stele uh, showing a, a relief or a carving in, in stone of what he looked like. 
That particular relief that you would see, though, is not regarding this particular campaign. It's actually a different campaign, but it's the same Esther Haddon. So attestations to the historicity of these people from even outside the Bible. The next one is Pildash. Like we say, we don't know a whole lot about Pildash, and same with Jitlaf. All right. The next one is Bethuel. Bethuel is the last one that's listed here as a son of Milcah and Nahor. Bethuel, you're going to find that Bethuel is mentioned in quite a few places. We're just now meeting him here, but we're going to run into him again in chapter 24. We're going to run into him again in chapter 25 and mentioned again in chapter 28. And one of the things that it says here about Bethuel in verse 23 is this. And Bethuel begot Rebekah, or Rivka, these eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. So he is the eighth of the ones of the sons that are born to Nahor and Milka. And this interesting uh, notation here that he's the father of somebody named Rebecca. Regarding Rebecca or Rivka in Hebrew, her name, what her name means, some possibilities that have been suggested. One of them is maybe a connection to a word that means to tie a loop over an animal. Another possibility is a stall, as in something you would keep an animal in or penned in. Another possibility is cow. Rebecca could actually come from a word that, or it could be a play on words that means cow or cattle. And then finally, another suggestion is blessing. It's related in sound to a word that means blessing. So how would you like to be named something that makes everybody think of cow when they call your name. I, I don't think that would be very flattering. Be thankful for the names that you've got. Uh, but back then, names had meanings. Nowadays, eh, not so much. We've, we've kind of lost that names have meaning tradition that was so prevalent back then. In verse 24, then, moving on to verse 24, we find that Nahor has a concubine. Now, a concubine was usually a female that was taken as a captive in war or was purchased. We've seen a similar role being played by Hagar. Hagar was kind of a concubine of Abraham, though she wasn't ever called that, at least not using the same word that we have here regarding Nahor's concubine. So Nahor's concubine is named Reuma. All right, Reuma ends up having four sons, Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. So not much is known about these men, but it turns out that uh, their names are all associated with sites in Aram, like I said, modern Syria, and northern Transjordan. So their names, the, these actual people end up becoming names of regions or areas later on. So how many do we have here? How many sons do we have here that are born to Nahor? Well, through Nahor and Milcah, we have Huz, Buz, Kemuel, that's three, Hesed is four, Hazo is five, Pildash is six, Jidlaf is seven, and Bethuel is eight. We have eight sons through Nahor and Milcah. How many do we have through Nahor and Reuma? We have four, Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. So we have eight through Nahor and Milcah, his wife, and then we have four more through Nahor and Reuma, his concubine. Eight and four are a total of what? Twelve. These gentlemen become known as the twelve Aramean tribes later on. Each of them ends up having a people group uh, born to them, and they end up becoming tribal names of sorts. So the 12 Aramean tribes. That particular information is kind of interesting when you consider some material that we've already looked at. Go back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. Genesis 17, 20 is this interesting place where God appears to Abraham, and he ends up saying to Abraham, I'm going to do my big work. I'm going to fulfill my promises through Isaac, a son that hasn't even been born yet. And Abraham says, no, please, can it just be through Ishmael? Ishmael's already been born. 
In chapter 17, verse 18, Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Saying, God, I get it. You've got big plans, but could you do it through Ishmael? Could you do those great plans through Ishmael? Can we just do it this way? And God says, no. But he does say in verse 20, he says this, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. The Lord is saying to Abraham now, Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. We have a prophecy there in chapter 17, verse 20, that Ishmael is going to have twelve sons who are going to become twelve tribes. That's kind of strange. We just saw who the 12 sons are going to become the 12 Aramean tribes through Nahor. Now we've got 12 sons that are going to become 12 tribes through Ishmael. It's a prophecy made by God in chapter 17, verse 20. It's fulfilled, or at least we're, just, we're given the information that it was fulfilled by the time we get to Genesis chapter 25. Once we get over to Genesis 25, verses 12 through 16, those 12 sons are actually named. And those become the 12 tribes of Ishmael. So we have the 12 Aramean tribes and the 12 tribes of Ishmael. So going back then to where we just left off, Genesis chapter 22, we've actually concluded that chapter. We're 22 fiftieths of the way through the book of Genesis, or what would that be, 11 25ths of the way through Genesis if you reduce your fractions. And so we're starting chapter 23. Let's go on to the first verse. Chapter 23, first and second verses say this, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Verse 2. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So we find in the first two verses of chapter 23 that Sarah dies. Sarah dies at 127 years old here. We haven't seen nor heard from Sarah in quite a while. If you think back, that whole Akedah story, no mention of Sarah. Sarah was absent in that story. If you look back before that, you have the story of Abraham and Abimelech and Phicol and the, uh, the discussion regarding the well and water and the dispute there that ha had to do with the water from a well there. And she wasn't mentioned there either. In fact, you have to go back to the story where the last thing Sarah's recorded as saying is regarding Hagar and Ishmael. When she tells Abraham, they need to get out. They need to leave. They will not share in the inheritance that Isaac is going to have. So it was after the birth of Isaac. It was during that party or celebratory time when he was weaned, probably two, three, four, five years old. That was the last time we heard from Sarah. And here we have this record now that she's passed away. Sarah was absent during that whole Akedah story, as I mentioned. And here, kind of interesting, in the mention of the death of Sarah... Isaac is not mentioned. How old is Sarah when she passes away? According to verse 1 right there, chapter 23, verse 1, she's 127 years old. 127 years old. How old was she when she gave birth to Isaac? She gave birth to Isaac when she was 90. So how old was Isaac when his mom passed away? Isaac was 37. 127 minus 90, 37 years old. So 37 years old. Now I want you to picture for a moment here. He's 37 years old and he's been living with mom and dad and he's not married. <laughs> it sounds kind of like 
a lot of people in our society today, but for different reasons. So Isaac's 37 years old. He's been living with mom and dad. And he's been living where? He's been living in roughly as vagabonds and sojourners in the land of Canaan. They've been wandering around among people with whom they don't identify, with whom they don't associate much. And he's got nobody that he's really related to over there except his mom and his dad. And now his mom has passed away. He's unmarried. And if you're looking or if you're thinking of a 37 year old, you're probably wondering, gosh, I only have two people in the world that I really identify with. And now one of them's passed away. And I don't have a wife. And I'm, I've heard of these promises. My dad's told me about these promises that, you know, it's supposed to be through me. I'm supposed to have a lot of kids. I'm not even married. How's this going to happen? Because these Canaanites, I'm sure that's not who I'm supposed to marry. I'm not supposed to marry any of these people. I live in a society where there's not a whole lot of marriageable material out here. And I'm thinking right about now as I'm saying this, there's probably people that would be hearing these words that could say, I can identify with that. I'm an adult. I live in a society that thinks different than I do. I live in a society that doesn't honor the same God that I honor. I live in a society where I feel like Though I'd like to be married, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of options out there. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of choices. It doesn't seem like the pool of marriageable people is very big. I just can't seem to find the right person. And part of the reason for that is because I desire to honor God. I desire to live for God and not compromise those kinds of standards. And for doing that, I'm kind of an outcast. I don't really fit in in this society. I don't really have anybody that I can feel connected with. I don't feel like there's anybody I can be equally yoked with among the people I'm looking around and seeing. He's 37 years old. If he didn't feel lonely before, he's probably feeling lonely now. If he wasn't sad before, he's probably sad now because the number of people that he really felt a kinship and a tie to seems to have diminished by half with the passing of mom. God, I want to get married. I want to find somebody. I don't see how I can find somebody around here. I I haven't met anybody that seems like it would be a good fit for me that I'd be equally yoked with. If you want me to get married, this is in your hands. I can't make something happen here. I can't make the right person appear. It's completely up to you, God. We find that Isaac is still sad three years later. By the time he's 40 years old... We find over in Genesis chapter 25, verse 20, at 40 years old, he still was sad about his mother's passing. The good news, though, is in context with that verse. If you go to chapter 25, verse 20, what does it say over there? Chapter 25, verse 20 says this, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Did you catch the name there? Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Hmm, that's interesting. That's the same name as somebody on our list right here. Wait, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife? Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Hey, we just met them. They're on our chart here. Bethuel is the eighth son, born of Milcah and Nahor, and Rebekah is specifically mentioned as his daughter. That's who Isaac ends up marrying. And then if you look at chapter 24, verse 67, it says, Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. 
and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Three years later, he was still sad about his mother passing away. It didn't look possible that there could be anybody for him, at least not in the pool of people he had seen. But you know what? God was working all along in the background. He had been preparing to address Isaac's loneliness all along with the birth of Rebekah and this Rebekah growing up to eventually become the wife of Isaac. This is going on hundreds of miles away. God's been making preparations all along to address the loneliness of Isaac. I think that's pretty neat that God would take notice of something like that. That God would take notice of a person's loneliness and have been already making preparations before Sarah even passed away. Interesting thing I hear about the passing away of Sarah. Sarah is the only one of the matriarchs whose age at her death is actually recorded. In fact, she's the only woman in the entire scripture whose age and death and burial are mentioned. And perhaps that's to honor her in, in a way among the Hebrew people. But nobody else receives that honor. No other female receives that honor of having her age mentioned, her death mentioned, and her burial mentioned. Chapter 23, verse 2. We already read it, but let's look a little more closely at it. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Kiriath Arba, it means a town of four. We don't know if there were four little towns that became a conglomerate of one town made up of four. Or perhaps it was at a crossroad with you know, different roads leading to different towns nearby, but it means town of four. In Hebron, we've looked at Hebron before. This has actually come up once before in our study, Genesis chapter 13, verse 18. The context over there was Abraham and Lot. They had grown so numerous in their clans that Abraham finally took Lot and said, you know what, pick wherever you want to go. There's not enough land for us. You pick some land in a direction of your choice, and I'll, I'll take the other direction. And so you'll remember how that story turned out. Um, but basically, at, very soon after that, we find Abraham over in Hebron, and he builds an altar there in Genesis chapter 13, verse 18. So that was the only other time that we've seen Hebron so far. Hebron's going to turn out to be a place not only where Sarah's going to end up being buried, but eventually we're going to find that Hebron is going to be the location where Abraham is buried, where Isaac is buried, Rebekah is buried, and Jacob and Leah are buried after they pass away as well. Hebron is also a significant place when we um, when we enter into the episode with David, the greatest king that uh, Israel's ever had. So here we have 12 descendants or 12 tribes that come from uh, Milcah and Nahor and Nahor and Reuma. Born of Nahor, we have 12 sons, eight from his wife, four from a concubine, a total of 12, the 12 Aramean tribes they eventually become known as. And then Ishmael, we see the 12 tribes of Ishmael. Now, talking a little bit about Isaac and Rebekah, just give you a little bit of an idea of what's to come. Rebekah and Isaac, they're going to end up having two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob's going to end up later being named Israel, having his name changed by God to Israel. And then Jacob, 12 sons as well, and eight of those are through his wives, and four of them through concubines. And they become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So on our chart here, on, on the whiteboard as we drew out yesterday, we have the 12 Aramean tribes that descend from Nahor. We have the 12 tribes of Ishmael that are going to descend from Ishmael. We have the 12 tribes of Israel that are going to descend from this union here of Isaac and Rebekah, and then their sons Esau and Jacob specifically through Jacob, renamed as Israel. So it's kind of interesting that we see 
in this connection, we see that Abraham's line provided the paternal ancestry, that is Isaac and Jacob, and the line of Nahor provides the maternal ancestry, Rebekah, and then later on Leah and Rachel come from the line of Nahor. What do I see here? I see a God of order. I see 12, 12, and 12 here. I, I'm sure that could be coincidental, right? <laughs> Unless you serve the God that I know. If you know the God, if you know the God of the universe like I know the God of the universe, you know that there aren't a whole lot of coincidences, okay? Things that might look like coincidences on the surface. Sometimes you can see God's thumbprint showing up in all of that. When it says there in verse 2 that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, we don't know from how far he came, but common in that day would be Sarah would have a tent, he would have a tent, and perhaps this is just describing that he walked and paid honor to his wife of so many years, paid honor to Sarah and came to the door of her tent uh, after she passed away there. Regarding Abraham mourning, coming to mourn for Sarah, Stuart Briscoe says this, The thought of aging and dying is not pleasant, and accordingly people try to avoid thinking about it. Perhaps this is why as many as 50% of Americans die without making a will. Great efforts are made to hold back the ravages of aging, diminished physical strength, deteriorating beauty, lapses of memory, loss of hearing and hair, and all kinds of other nasty things. But Nautilus equipment, hair pieces, and plastic surgery notwithstanding, the issue of mortality has to be faced. As a surgeon friend reminded me recently, it has been proven conclusively that life is 100% fatal. Accepting this without in any way succumbing to morbid despair is a sign of maturity which believers particularly can reasonably be expected to demonstrate. I know of no better expression of a proper attitude than that of the Apostle Paul who wrote, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So what do I see here? What are some of the main points that we should consider or ponder as we look at the study today? Well, number one, I think one of the things that we should realize is that these are real people. These are real people that gave rise to the names of real regions and real lands. This is history. In looking at this, this isn't myth. This isn't made up. This isn't story time. All right, this is history. And looking at this, it provides for us evidence of a historical background to Genesis. Real people, real places. Another thing to consider is that this also seems to suggest evidence that God is taking care well in advance to address Isaac's loneliness and to provide relief for his loneliness at his timing. In fact, in this situation with Isaac and Rebekah, it's God who decides the who, the what, where, when, why, and how of them getting together. If you're in that time of loneliness, if you're in a similar time of loneliness as experienced by Isaac, let God be the one who decides the who, what, where, when, why, and how in your life. Another thing to consider is that when you look at all these names, you plot out the family tree, you see the 12 Aramean tribes, the 12 tribes of Ishmael, the 12 tribes of Israel. This suggests design. And something that suggests design suggests there's a designer behind it, the God of the universe in this case. And number four, life is 100% fatal. Life is 100% fatal. 
Unless we're still alive when Yeshua comes back, we're all going to die someday, and likely before we expect it. We do well to make the most of this brief life we have here on earth, and the best way that I can think of to live our life to the fullest is to surrender ourselves completely to God and to live it completely for his glory. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, in the second half of that verse, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But we're also warned by the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then finally, I was given a quote by Jennifer, who's a part of this study group, and she gave this to me a week ago, and I, I thought it was appropriate for right here. I don't know who said this or where it came from, but it says, The life of Abraham is an illustration of two things. Number one, of unreserved surrender to God. And number two, and of God's complete possession of a child of his for his own highest end. That's how we're to make the most of this brief life here on earth. To be completely surrendered to God and that God have complete possession of us for his glory, for his highest end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for encouraging us through your word, inspiring us through your word, challenging us through your word, and helping us to grow in our understanding of how involved you actually are and how involved you actually have been in the lives of people through history. We thank you, Lord, that we can take comfort that we're not reading about fictional characters, that these are real people who lived in real places that we can read about in Scripture that have attestations from outside the Scriptures even. We thank you, Lord, that your word proves to be trustworthy just as it's a reflection of you, you who continually prove to us that you're trustworthy. Help us, Lord, with that in mind that you are trustworthy. Help us to surrender ourselves to you. And we pray that you would do with our lives what you will for your glory, for your highest end. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.